Great to be together this morning for our time of study. Look with me then at uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, where we have been, of course, studying so often and watching Jesus as He masterfully deals with the crowds around Him. We come now, of course, to a section in chapter 14 that can sometimes, uh, in, in the shocking nature of the way Jesus says things, can sometimes set us on our heels a little bit. In fact, sometimes people have said to me, this, this took their assurance away temporarily. Of course, we have no desire to take biblical assurance forged in the fires of faithfulness away from you. Spirit has to give assurance. When He gives it, He gives it in a way that is remarkably settled and permanent. But it's also true that passages like this challenge us to examine ourselves and, uh, and to examine what kind of a disciple we are. Jesus uses very strong language here in order to deal with what discipleship really is. He defines it a certain way and the tendency of the human heart is to do the opposite. And when I, when I uh, was studying the passage, I was thinking about when I enlisted in the United States military I had heard stories about boot camp and, you know, basic training, if you will, the more formal name. I'd heard stories about how the drill sergeants would break you down mentally and physically and emotionally so that your life essentially would be stripped of all that you were clinging to in civilian life. Everything that you knew before, everything that you were attached to, they needed to cut you off from that and isolate you and make you like everyone else so they could break down all of your personal tendencies, all of the ways that you had individualized in your civilian life, and make you one with a host of other individuals who'd been also broken down, and then they could try and make a dedicated soldier out of you. And it was very calculated training in that environment, and it was designed to do several things. First of all, it was designed to weed out the weak. <clears throat> Military training at boot camp was designed to expose those who were weak, whose, whose personal disposition and composition was unable to cope with the extreme conditions of battle. And then they would set those aside. They could not finish their training. And then the, the training went a, a step further, and it was designed to expose and get rid of those who refuse to conform to the rules of engagement. People who had a disdain for authority. People who had a dislike, a marked dislike for discipline. They were people who weren't going to conform to the rules of engagement and therefore you couldn't accomplish a task with a lot of moving parts and succeed. But most of all, if you just boiled the training down to, to its core design, it was intended ultimately to expose those who'd made a superficial commitment when they signed on the dotted line. People who said they wanted to be a part of it, they wanted to be a soldier, but their commitment was superficial. There were a lot of wannabe soldiers that would enlist for a lot of different reasons, all of them less than the commitment necessary. Some thought it might gain them a, a bit of a prestige. They could gain some rank and outrank others, and that would give them a sense over other people. Others thought that maybe it would entitle them to a sense of security, free from the uncertainties of civilian life. Maybe they thought that being in the military was such a tight-knit community that they would be rid once and for all of all the 
the sense of insecurity that comes sometimes in this life. Or perhaps it was even far more superficial and juvenile than that. Maybe they just saw the commercials and all the, the technology and all these young people toting all this very expensive technology around and it became for them an ultra, ultimate virtual reality video game and they thought they could run around and kill people with cool weapons. Boot camp was designed to expose all that, particularly superficial reasons why you would sign up. In other words, they want to know who is serious, who will do it the only way that it can be done, who's thinking serious enough about becoming a soldier, because the military is not in the business of wasting money on the shallow and the uncalculated. When they're done training you, they want something, and they're not going to allow you to get there some other way. There's only one way to achieve their goal, and they have their goal in mind. They want a highly disciplined military weapon who'd been trained to understand the threat of the enemy, takes it seriously. They want someone who's been tested in every aspect of battle readiness. Literally, they want you part of the fighting machine who knows the cost of failure. And because of that, is completely given over to the cause. So utterly given over to the cause that nothing will deter the resolve. Nothing will be an obstacle to the necessary discipline. Nothing will minimize the sheer dedication needed. The honing of every necessary skill for completing the mission and securing the victory, nothing will get in the way of that. That was the goal. It's like Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, Verse 4 to Timothy, when he made military battles, the analogy to ministry and said, look, you need to suffer hardship as a good soldier. And no soldier, Timothy, in active service, entangles himself in the affairs of his everyday world that he used to be attached to because he needs to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. That's right. They want utter focus. If you enter without that, without doing it their way, on their terms with their achieving of the goal in mind, you have entered superficially. And in a similar way, Jesus is essentially cutting to the core here of what it means to commit yourself to Him as a true disciple. It cannot be, He says, mere talk. It can't be just mere words. As one person said to me, it can't be all hood and no engine. I like that. True disciples of Jesus Christ do not follow him based on superficial ideas about what it means to be one of his. Jesus says if you did that, if you came to him on that basis, you're not really one of his disciples. A true disciple of Christ, the, the one who's the real deal, doesn't treat the relationship casually, doesn't drop the name Jesus here and there among friends and telling them he has an important place in your life, quote-unquote. A genuine, proven disciple of Christ is not a person who thinks that following Jesus should be all about having my sense of comfort, my sense of emotional wholeness with all my relationships in life. As if living for Christ should not result in a conflict of any kind with life, with circumstances, or with people. There are people who actually believe that. They believe that coming to Jesus should not involve serious heartache and trials unless, unless they befall you and, 
and then you sort of conclude from that that you must be out from under God's blessing because He would never take Christians through anything like that. There are people who actually think following Jesus means that they get all of their emotional comforts taken care of, all of their idolatries taken care of. It's Jesus plus everything else that they want in this life. You know, it's sad, but within the walls of evangelical culture in this country, shallow attractions to Jesus Christ, shallow attachments to His name have become so common in the church that many who claim Christ do not even understand the basics of the gospel anymore. The basics of what it means to come on His terms in repentance and faith with none of your works, none of your idolatries, none of that that you're willing to hold on to, all of it let go of, all of it placed on the altar, whether He asks for all of it or not, it's all His. And it's gone. The church has attracted the world with the opposite. Promises, that if you are a follower of Christ, it'll cost you nothing. What you already love, what you already enjoy, no, it's not going to cost you any of those things. Jesus wants you to have all those things. Jesus just wants to be a part of it. He wants to be invited to the picnic. That's all. He wants to be a part of your life. We have promised the world that so often that now the world sort of laughs at the fact that the church claims Jesus and talks about morality and conservatism, but, but basically they don't see us as any different as an evangelical culture per se. We still love to raise ourselves up, love to brag about ourselves. We love to flaunt whatever it is we love in this life. We love to attach ourselves to the world. We love to minimize what the Bible says, question the Bible, doubt Christ, doubt what it really means. We love that. The church loves that. It's like sport, intramural sport. Listen, Jesus never missed an opportunity to set the record straight, and he does that very thing here in this text. Notice verse 25, large crowds were going along with him. Boy, haven't we seen that before? All through the gospel, large crowds, always following Jesus, throngs of them claiming to be his disciples. They ran around telling other people about him and probably repeated some version of what he taught saying, look, I know Jesus, so yeah, I follow Jesus, I'm his disciple, I'm one of his, I'm part of that movement. They were enamored with things about the movement, but not serious all the time, and Jesus is constantly wanting to call them out. Look, you're just enamored with my power. You know, I do things, and you're here because you're curious, you want to see some display of the supernatural, or you're emotionally stirred, stirred by the, the healings that I do, I mean... You can imagine in a culture like that, uh, poverty was rampant and disease was rampant and even demon possession, it seemed, when the Lord was on the earth, seemed to be exposed more often than not and no one could do anything. The greatest religious leaders around couldn't exercise these evil forces and they tortured people mercilessly. Jesus comes along, he's healing everyone, he's casting out demons, of course, People were emotionally stirred by such things, and Jesus calls them out for it. All you're, doing, all you're interested in is, is that I, I take care of your emotional needs. I, I relieve your sorrows in your personal life. He was fearless, and they, they loved it because it inspired them. He was kind to his enemies, and, and that astonished them. 
He seemed to live by the highest human ideals, and they admired him for it, curiously following around, watching it on display. And they even sort of rode his coattails when he would take a stand toe-to-toe with Rome, whom they hated in the Roman empirical oppression, and when he stood against Israel, when they saw the hypocrisy of the, of the Sanhedrin, Jesus stood against them, and there were people just sort of rode on his coattails there. Not interested in following Jesus on his terms, but they, they would have told you, I'm a disciple. Absolutely, I'm his disciple. They liked so many things about him. They followed him around the countryside, as is indicated here. They named him as their guru because it added benefit to their life. But you know what? The Lord was in a totally different mode. The Lord was always in a different mode. At one point, he fed all those thousands of people on the hillside. They came back the next morning for more food, and he said, look, stop looking for the food that satisfies your physical hunger temporarily. Come to me. Embrace me. In other words, they'd come the day before as his quote-unquote disciples sat on the hillside. He fed them. They went home. They came back. He knew they weren't interested in believing in him. He knew that. He was in a totally different mode all the time. It's like it says in John chapter 2. Many believed in his name, but you know what he did? He didn't entrust themselves to all of them. You know why? Because he knew it was in men's hearts. He knew that they came for these other superficial reasons. They sign on the dotted line, not on his terms, but on their own. He knew it. It happened all the time. Notice chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Because which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and isn't able to finish All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Well, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other's still far away, he sends a delegation at least and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you, can be my disciple who does not give up all his own things. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is, uh, this is the way that Jesus spoke to crowds often in order to filter motives and whether or not you understood what you were doing. You follow him around for curious reasons, but why are you really there? Why are you really following him around saying you're his disciple? Because Jesus says here, there there are some conditions you must consider. 
there are things you must consider about what it means to actually be called a true disciple. Now, you don't have to do anything to work your way there. No one can work their way into being a worthy disciple of Christ. Christ saves you and makes you a disciple. But in order to come to Him, you must come to Him on His terms. Your heart must be fixed on what He says discipleship is and not on your own definition of it. You don't get Jesus added to whatever it is you think discipleship is. That's His point. Now, we'd heard him say strong statements like this before. In fact, look back at chapter 9 for a moment. We'll refresh our memory. He'd, he'd said things like this numerous times. And I can imagine why Luke records it over and over again, because it was shocking language. And it probably caused crowds to peel off, as it often did by what we read in the Gospels. Verse 23 of chapter 9 he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You remember when we studied this, deny yourself. It's, it's a verb that means to, to disappear, to make yourself go away, to make you, your individuality, your interests, your desires, your agenda, your aspirations, all of that is to be put on the altar and killed. You go away in terms of everything that you believe about yourself, everything you want to be in and of yourself. You must deny yourself. Notice, take up your cross daily. That is a metaphor in the ancient world for death. To be crucified was to have your life taken and, and in a curse, the death of a cursed one. Look, you're to take up the cursed life. You're to take up the life where you die and Christ begins to shine through you. You do that, he says, if you really wish to come after me. And then you follow me. You do what I say. Verse 24, because if you wish to save your own life, you're going to end up losing it. If you wish to save your, everyone, if you wish to lose your life for my sake, you will save it. It doesn't profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, does it? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Strong words by the Lord Jesus. Look in chapter 9 a little further, up at verse 57. They were going along the road and look at this claim someone made. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, the... Foxes have their holes and the birds their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Are you willing to follow me when the comforts of life may be ripped from you? And He said to another, follow me, but He said, Lord, I, I need to go bury my father. Jesus said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. He wanted to go bury his father. The family inheritance was going to be divided up. He wanted his resources. Verse 61, another said, I'll follow you, Lord. First, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Look, your family is going to influence you, and you're vulnerable to those influences. They will take you away from the gospel. You need to be about the gospel. Souls are what matter. Jesus had said these kinds of things many times. What was he saying? Look, a life of following Christ has no guaranteed ease to it. All your comforts, you may have them, you may not. It, it, there's no guaranteed ease in the Christian life. When we studied that text in chapter 9, 
He said, a life of following Christ is concern for souls. It's souls that matter. It's eternity that matters. This life is nothing. It's a vapor. It's here today. It is gone in a whisper. And a life of following Christ, though no guaranteed ease and is concerned with souls, it has a singular devotion to it. Unrivaled, he said. Now, as I told you, people, people say they're a disciple of Christ for a host of reasons. And this is, you know, as I started studying this passage, I just started jotting down some of what I've not only heard through the years, both as a Christian as well as my own human heart before, before I was a Christian. I attached myself to Jesus. I lived like I wanted to between the Sundays and on Sunday would, you know, go to church with my parents and uh, in high school and a little bit of the couple years beyond that, I, I, I did all those things. I came for superficial reasons. I wanted something of, of what I could get from it in my reputation or whatever. I, I wanted that. I wanted it on my terms. And I started to jot down some of the reasons I've heard through the years for people to attach themselves as a, quote, disciple of Christ and then wander away or, or it proves false. And of course, I don't know the tares from the wheat. Only God knows who the tares are among the wheat. But there are some, no doubt, even in this room, who from the very beginning have attached yourself to Jesus and said you're a disciple of Christ, but you came for superficial reasons. When you signed on the dotted line, you didn't do it on His terms. Some of the common notions about following Christ that get people into trouble are these. First of all, financial prosperity financial prosperity. It is the notion that, that false teachers and false movements have promoted this idea that you can have all this luxury here and now. You should want it. Jesus Christ guarantees it. And it comes through this great, powerful instrument called faith. Faith is the key to tap into the divine power available for naming what you desire, claiming it. You can have it now. And you have some personal authority that you're entitled to as you follow Jesus as a disciple. Never mind that even in this gospel, a few chapters later in chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, no man can serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, hold to the one and despise the other. No, you can't have any rivals to Christ when you come. You can't attach yourself to Jesus and say you're his disciple because you think somehow in it there is going to be this great, easy, get-rich, luxurious, life-quick kind of scheme. People do it all the time, though. remember years ago hearing about a false teacher, Robert Tilton, and he's, his college buddy and his roommate said that when they were in college, they would talk about how they were going to make their millions. And he bragged about the fact that the way to make the millions the fastest with the least amount of work is to be a televangelist. And so he just concocted his whole ministry crafted an image, and it's been millions upon millions for his entire life, and he has bilked people out of it in the quote-unquote evangelical churches. That's this kind of superficial approach to Christ. It is people who think that Christ is going to give them everything they want here and now, that somehow they're entitled to it in him, and they can use him as some sort of authority demanding that God give it to them because of Jesus. And they ignore passages 
like Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Another superficial notion for why people follow Christ or say that they're a disciple of Christ is religious lineage. Religious lineage. Say, what do you mean? Well, you know, maybe you grew up in a family that named the name of Christ. That's your heritage. That's how you grew up. And so far as you can tell, it was a pretty decent way of life. It was fairly morally conservative. It was a less destructive existence than the pagan families around you. When you get together as families, it seems to be more conservative on the moral side. And, you know, there are places in this country where you can go and, and everybody goes to church. Everybody goes to church. Everybody's a Christian. I mean, I lived for three years in the military in, in that part of the country, and it's just shocking. They don't care about anything about Christ midweek, don't even know anything about the Bible, but, man, they're a disciple of Jesus. They go to church. And when you get together, it's, it's because they, they have some sort of family solidarity. They're getting something out of it. It's more enjoyable as a way of life. Even if their life is filled with scandal, they can sort of cover that over because you're more conservative on most moral issues and you're, you're, you're not going to discuss the things that are much more specific. And that's okay too. They ignore scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one may receive from God uh, a recompense for whether he lived a life of wickedness or, or lived for Christ. Each one will stand by himself, isolated. You, your family won't be there. You don't, you don't get to claim some heritage. But people attach themselves as a disciple of Christ to that kind of stuff all the time. Or maybe you say you're a disciple of Christ, but from the very beginning, something else was far more important to you, like your emotional healing. Maybe because people mistreated you, you've been terribly hurt by someone, and following Jesus makes sense to you because everything you've ever heard about him is that he's kind and gentle, and you've been harshly treated by someone. So you come to the church because you hope it will be kind and gentle, and Jesus is the great healer, and you found people at church who comfort your broken heart. You've never actually repented. You've never actually put your faith in Christ, studied His Word, and lived for Him and Him alone. You have a different love, a love that's higher than Christ. Guess what it is? It's how you feel all the time. It's an idolatry of your comfort, and you love your comfort, and the people at church make you feel comfortable, and You've been hurt by people and you're a victim and on and on it goes. That's a superficial response to Christ. Can God use our emotional brokenness to bring us to himself? Yes. The proof is in whether or not you live for him or whether you live for some emotional sense of wholeness on your terms. Or what about a similar one? Sometimes people say they're a disciple of Christ, but really all they're about is acceptance without being judged. You ever heard that? Oh, I go to that church because they accept everybody. They don't judge anybody. You know why people do that? Because they've made some decisions in their life and the consequences are obvious. The fallout is that they feel ashamed and they feel guilty. And the church they attend seems to be a place where they're not asked any hard questions or challenged to deal with what caused those issues in the first place. 
They're not interested in a real cure. They just want you to put some band-aids out there and some ointment and play some nice music. That's what they're after. Nobody's going to ask them what they really need. No one's going to help them see the, the areas of their life they need Christ to, to take care of. No one is going to ask them anything hard at all. I remember there was a Christian song years ago called Unexpected Friends, and it was basically that idea. A person living in sin out there, away from God's people, and when they came back, no one asked anything. Everybody just said, oh, we're not asking where you've been. Just come on. Come on back. Really, what about helping them? What about helping them avoid it in the future? No, we don't, we don't talk about that. Sometimes people say they're a disciple of Christ because there are personal fears that they have that seem to be calmed around church people. Maybe you fear death. You don't want to talk about what the Bible says about it or what Jesus says about it. You've never dealt with your eternal future and destiny. You've never repented of your sins. But you like being around church people because you fear being, you know, lost. And they keep telling you you need to come to Christ. And you just like to be around people that talk a lot about security. Or how about you fear being exposed for who you really are, and so you go to a church that doesn't bother doing any of that. Your fears are calmed with respect to your conscience. Or what about the fact that you just love the culture we used to live in, and now it's starting to really go downhill, and you fear the moral crisis, and so you go to a church suddenly saying you're a disciple of Christ, but you just... You just fear what's happening in our culture. You want to be around a group of people who are going to try to solve all those problems. Or maybe you fear being alone. You attach yourself to the church because these people love to come around people and help, help them. They like to help people who seem lonely. They like to give you the gospel. But you just like the fact that they're comforting your aloneness. You fear failure. The church seems to be a calming influence in your life. Is that why you come? And you know, there's a, there's a host of other reasons that people name the name of Christ but aren't real true disciples. Like, what if, what if the church is just your ready-made audience? You know, you love knowledge. You love learning big things, all about spiritual things. And the church kind of becomes your classroom. That's why you're here. You didn't come on the basis of discipleship in Christ. You came in order to be the self-proclaimed spokesperson for Jesus. And you love to instruct others because it feeds something in you. There's something you get out of, out of feeding your sense of yourself. And so you use the church as a place of knowledge where you can be puffed up. You love the sense of authority you have over others and you feel empowered. And all of that keeps you at a distance from anyone who might examine your life closely. Is that, is that why you're here? You just love the, it's a place of knowledge. Or maybe you're not like that, any of those but maybe you really, really do, deep down, you just love earth, you love the world. You love the culture, you love the world, but you go to church because it saves face a little bit. I mean, you don't really want people to know that you just love the world. You love everything about the world, you love everything about the culture. You don't want anyone to see that. You don't want, you, you enjoy feeding those desires, but you don't want others to think of you like that. So being in church you know, salves your conscience a bit, keeps up the image you want to portray so that no one thinks your spirituality is worse than it is. It's the best of both worlds, really. 
Or maybe you're here because you think the church can solve your marriage conflict or the rift between you and your children. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe you, uh, you use the church to expand your business market, you know? You have this great new product, and the church is just a ready audience. And so you come here, and you say you're a disciple of Christ, but you start working your way through the congregation, showing off what you have for them. Why do you claim to be a disciple of Christ? That's what Jesus is dealing with here with this crowd. That's what he's dealing with. The first thing he says about a true disciple is shocking. We'll just introduce this and then unpack it fully next time. But here's what Jesus says right out of the gate. If you're truly going to be my disciple, you must come, not only just how you live after that in the power of Christ, but you must come first and foremost with no higher loves than Christ. As the core heart passion of your desire, your desperate need, your passion to be his disciple, you must come with no higher loves. Notice how he says this to this crowd. If anyone comes to me, that is the verb that essentially means toward me as a follower. In this context, it's a verb that means if you come with the intention to follow me, this is what you claim. If anyone claims to want to be a follower of me, and at the same time, he doesn't, notice this language, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. You say, wait a, wait a minute, hold on. I mean, this is very stark terminology. In fact, Every category here, while it all deals with family so far, every category here has commands in Scripture to the opposite. So that is very strange. Why would Jesus say it like this if you're commanded to honor your father and mother? That is the first command, by the way, with a promise that it will go well with you on the earth. Yeah, that's right. When children respect and honor the authorities in their life, even after you get out from underneath parental authority and you're on your own, there is still a certain honor with the aged. It is honored toward the seasoned ones in life. They've lived more life than you. They're more experienced. There is to be this honor granted to them. You don't obey them anymore as you did when you were little, but you honor them. That's a command in Scripture. And what about your spouse? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, you're to love Christ and submit yourself to your spouse and Pour yourself out into the home for your spouse and your children. What about your children themselves? Yeah, you're to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're to love them by disciplining them before those who spare the rod don't love their children. But those who apply the rod do, Proverbs says. Brothers and sisters, are you kidding? We're to prefer others above ourselves. Romans 12 says you're to outdo one another in showing preference and honor and love without hypocrisy. Every one of these categories has a command to do what seems to be the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. But the end of verse 26 gives us a little clue. Yes, even hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Well, now, now we're getting an understanding of what he's saying. Everything that I desire about those relationships as an influence, 
every way, we could say it this way, in which those relationships captivate me as an influence. Every way they can guide me, lead me, teach me, influence me, direct my life, direct my morals, my ethics. In every way, a father is an influence on me. A mother has sway over me. A spouse can get into my world and direct and guide and influence and push me in a certain way ethically, morally. Every way that a child and my affection for a child can can cause me to move away from what God says and toward just wanting a friendship with my children. How many times has that happened? People actually at times leave a good ministry and good teaching because their kids are in unbelief and they don't want to have the friendship with their kids severed. Jesus says any way that a child who is drifting from the truth or doesn't want the truth can influence you. Any way a brother or sister whose relationship has been forged in the fires of time together, anyone who you love so deeply and so richly and so powerfully who could lead you astray, all of those relationships, he said, cannot become higher influences, higher loves than Christ. Because if that's the case, then you cannot say you're my disciple because you cannot actually be my disciple. Disciple, by the way, in the New Testament is is generic terminology for, hey, I follow that person as my teacher, I'm their learner. If you saw them, you would see me. Associate them as a teacher, you associate me as the learner. We are interconnected. And so using the context of the way Jesus says it here, are you a learner of Christ and he is your highest guide, your highest teacher, your highest influence, your highest love, even, listen, if it costs you those other relationships precious to you. Man, grandparents, parents, husband, wife, brother, sister, young person, children, those relationships that you enjoy, given to you as a privilege, broken and strained or not, the things you count as close to you, the blood that is thicker than water, all those relationships that you cherish and love and count precious. When you said you were coming to Christ, Were all those relationships on the altar? Jesus says it in another occasion. Matthew records where he actually interprets what he's saying here in the shocking way he says it here. He says, if you love those relationships more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love those relationships more than me, well, what would that look like? (laughs) Influence. You You want your father... To have such a close relationship with you that you're willing to let your dad dictate what goes on in your spiritual life rather than Scripture, rather than Christ, you have a problem with your discipleship. You have a spouse that doesn't love Christ, doesn't want Christ, or has a different version of Christ than the Scriptures. What is your commitment? Whom are you influenced by? Those are difficult relationships. But where do you draw the line? Jesus says by comparison... All those other influences which are precious to you should seem like the opposite if you really are 
a disciple of Christ. Why? Because a disciple of Christ says, Lord, what do you want in that relationship? What do you say? Lord, when do you want it? How do you want it? What would you like from me? What can I lay on the altar? I own nothing. I depend upon you. I'm your slave. You're my master. You tell me where to go. You tell me what to do. You tell me what to speak. You tell me how to live. You're my highest love, my highest allegiance. I have no higher influence than you. If those things collide, I must make a choice. And a true disciple chooses Christ. Chooses his word, chooses his truth. You say, well, pastor, I, I struggle sometimes to, to follow Christ at that level. Do you know, you know what you need to do? You need to get very specific. What does Christ demand of you specifically? If you're living in the generic, then yeah, you can sort of blend in a blurry way those dynamics. Oh yeah, you know, my family, they, they, they have some influence and they're not always following the scriptures, but you know, we, we get along. Why? Because you're never specific. If your family has another gospel, you're in danger. That line should be clear. Even when you spend time with them, that, that line should be pretty clear. If your family has a different Jesus, that line should be pretty clear. If they have a different ethic than a biblical ethic, if they have different morals than biblical morals, those lines should be more and more clearly drawn as you try to love them. You try to explain those things and open up the Word of God. If you get generic, oh, you can blend it, you can get blurry, but Jesus says, that's not it. That's not your love for me. Your love for me, if you want to be my disciple, ought to be, by contrast, the opposite. It ought to look like the opposite. Your love for me is to be so much higher that nothing else compares. What is it going to require? Well, the end of verse 26, you, should, you shouldn't love your own life. Verse 27, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. There it is, a metaphor for death again the death of self. So all those things I listed, you can't come to Jesus and want financial prosperity. He may take it all from you. It's all His anyway. You can't serve God and money. You can't come to Christ and say, I'm a disciple of Christ, but you never really dealt with the fact that you need to repent of your own sin. You're, you're banking on what your family did. You're banking on how you grew up. You're banking on church involvement or what your grandparents were. I remember a guy one time... Beloved brother, and was in actual ministry, full-time ministry. And uh, I said to him, so tell me your testimony. When did you come to Christ? He said, I've always been a Christian. <laughs> no? No, I'm pretty sure the Bible's clear on that. We're born in sin. You're not born a Christian. What was he doing? He, he was... He, grew up in the church. Parents were always in the church. His family's always been in the church. He's just automatic. It happens all the time. If you came to Jesus and He's your emotional healer, not through the gospel, but through the people of God who make you feel better about yourself, well, you've got to check whether you're truly His disciple. You can't come to Jesus because the church doesn't judge anyone. Well, the church is no one's judge. But Christ is, and He's the head of the church, and He opens up His Word, and He tells us what, what the gospel is, and who is in and who's not, and what the fruit of the gospel is. If somebody's not showing any fruit, they can come around and say they're a disciple all they want, but if they just would rather live for themselves, it's not faithful. What about your personal fears? If they're not calmed in Christ, you need to check 
whether you're his true disciple. If the church is a ready-made audience where you get puffed up with knowledge and you use it sort of as your little token classroom, you can't come to Christ that way. If you love the world, really just love the culture, but you just don't want anyone to really know that, so you say you're a disciple of Christ, Jesus says you got to check. you got to check that love of your heart because if even family relationships are to pale compared to your love for Christ. You can't come for any other reason. You come for Christ, for Him alone, His sacrifice, His work on your behalf, His power, His teaching, His words. He is the discipler. We are the learners. Those are the only terms, He said. And even the most precious relationships to us are on the altar. Of course you don't hate people. Jesus says it this way to shock the crowd into understanding the difference between loving Him and the love we have in human relationships. You're to carry your own cross and come after Christ. That is to say, Lord, what do you want? What are your terms? You know what His terms are? Faith and repentance. True faith, true repentance. How will it manifest itself? I love everything about Christ. I love His Word. I love, I love His heart. I love what He wants from me. I, I, I don't always obey it. Clearly, you can read a passage like this and say, man, who's in? Who could ever be in? Of course. But what is the heart? What is your heart? When you came to Christ, what was your heart? Was it, Jesus, I'm adding you to everything on my terms? Or was it, I, all of it's gone. All of it's on the altar. It's done. I'll die to all of it, Lord. Take it from me if you want it. And teach me how to let go of it. Now, having come to you, teach me how to let go of it. That is what it means to be a true disciple. How costly is it when you consider discipleship on Jesus' terms? Well, he illustrates it. We don't have time to cover it this week, but he illustrates it powerfully. It's costly. You better consider it. You cannot... Imagine what the church has been teaching over the last 40 years. You should not imagine it to be that way. That you can just come to a kind of Jesus that just says, you know, like the whole phrase, oh, come as you are. Well, in one sense, you can't work your way to heaven. So I guess that's what people mean sometimes when they say that. But on the other hand, when they say come as you are, do they really understand what they mean? Are they saying, add Jesus to everything I want? If that's the case, Jesus says you can't be my disciple. You don't add Jesus to anything. If Jesus is your master, everything else dies. Everything. The evidence of it is in those illustrations, and we'll look at that next time. Let's pray.